next week. <clears throat> the uh, commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And does that mean that we are commanded to love ourselves? Well, I remind you from last time that a great deal of debate has gone on about that matter. My conclusion is that although there is certainly a self-love that is evil, we are condemned for in the Bible, we are to love and care for ourselves, both body and soul, in the right way according to God's word. And I put it to you that the main problem we have today is not that people love themselves too much, but they love themselves far too little, neglecting their very souls and giving themselves to a course of destruction while they care nothing for the redeeming, heart-expanding, life-giving love of God. How I wish people could begin to love themselves far more. Uh, That by way of review. The sense of these words, of course, is to love our neighbor as ourself, meaning you, you know how you ought to be treated. You know how you would wish to be treated, and that you are therefore to treat others that way. It is set up for us now as a practical rule, as Jesus says elsewhere, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, it is a practical matter, and probably because we've had such a shallow and sentimental view of love, certainly in the 20th century, the Christian reaction has tended to move away from sentimentality altogether, I think, to the opposite extreme, so that it's very common now to hear that love is not a feeling. It often comes with some fancy-sounding Greek words. The word here, which is agape, in both commandments, by the way, uh, this word, some people say, is merely commitment, devotion, and self-sacrificial service that seeks the highest good of another, but not emotion. Now, I've, I've taught on this before at length. I had a whole sermon on this a few years ago. Let me simply remind you that as popular as this view became in the 20th century as the pendulum was swinging the opposite direction, it actually has no basis either in Greek or in biblical theology. The word agape is just like the English word love. It has a rather wide range of uses in the Bible and in our own experience. I I love pizza and I love my wife, but I don't say that in the same sentence because I have very different meanings in mind. It's the same way in the Bible. The uh, word agape is used 19 times in the ancient Greek version of the Song of Solomon, for instance, where it is there used for marital, romantic, passionate, even physical love. And as an extreme example, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, we read where when Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, the text says that he loved her, and it's the very same word that we find here. I won't weary you anymore with definitions or anything, but simply to say the leading scholarly Greek-English dictionary has this as the first definition of agape, quote, to have a warm regard for, an interest in another, cherish, have affection for, love. But as I say, just like in English, it has a wide range of meaning. Nevertheless, here is C.S. Lewis at his best. Love, as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. 
They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other, as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. Or a little more recently, we had a Sunday school a while back where Vodi Bauckham taught our Sunday school class a few years ago by video. Biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Is that clear? As I say, I packed it with information today. Um, That doesn't mean that we need to love everything the same. I love pizza, I love my wife. We don't have to love them the same. It means that we need to delight in everyone in a different kind of way. For some, as being creatures in the image of God, though other things about them we rightly do not like. Love teaches us that we are at least to have sympathy and compassion for all. In difficult situations, we could ask ourselves, well, if I myself was being unreasonable and unkind, how would we want people to respond to us? How could somebody overcome my ill feeling with good? The command originally given, I say, through Leviticus specifies some of these difficulties, by the way. In context, the verse itself here, it says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And in that same chapter, it goes through some of the difficult particulars, which I'll mention tonight. The law says, you shall not mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you yourselves were strangers in the land of Egypt. If you ever take your garment, your, your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. It's his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? The law asks. That is to say, you can go a long way toward fulfilling this law simply by asking yourself, what would I like to have happen to me? You know how you want to be treated. Use your own natural sympathy and compassion and kindness that you want people to exercise toward you to exercise that way toward others. Uh, Exodus 23, similarly, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Exodus 23, uh, just after the Ten Commandments, that kind of explanation is given to understand the, the, the goal of the law is love. And in Luke 6, the Lord himself describes how to love enemies. And, and listen to the practical instruction. Listen to the verbs that are parallel to love. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Now listen to the parallel three as, we are explain, as it explains what this actually means. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It doesn't matter how much people are doing against you, you can at least do them good, wish them good, and speak good to them. So he says, if somebody strikes you on the one cheek, you can even turn to him the other also. It is our glory as Christians that every one of us, every day, is called to practice not just self-restraint, but cheek-turning, coat-giving, extra-mile-walking love to show our neighbor God's love for God's sake. And it's our Father's great promise that as we do so, 
we share in His love and that He will be with us. So I would like to think that you are my biggest problem, my biggest obstacle to loving, to love. I'd like to think that you are the biggest obstacle. And I struggle to love because of who you are. But the truth is, I struggle to love because of who I am. Because this distinctively Christian motivation, this distinctively Christian power, calls me to practice over time, consistently, faithfully, sacrificially, something that's supernatural. Something that does not exist in me by nature that I can draw from and find only in God. We must not, of course, take an overly sentimental approach. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. He loved his enemies. And therefore, when his enemies were turning the temple into a house of thieves, he drives them out with a stinging rebuke because that is what love demands. Even, again, in the Leviticus passage, you shall rebuke your neighbor, you shall not bear sin because of him, you shall love him as yourself. That is to say, if you were doing such things, you would want somebody to come along and tell you the truth with some sharpness because they cared about you. When Jesus is in the synagogue and people are angry that he's going to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, we read in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Jesus loved them, and he was angry and grieved that these people were so hard-hearted. There's no contradiction. So let's not be overly sentimental either. either. This command is very far-reaching. It forces us to think through in terms of our feelings, our desires, our words, our actions, what we would want if we were in the same situation. And we know little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of ungodly people. Like Paul who said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart for my brethren, according to the flesh, that have a zeal but not according to knowledge. If the Lord himself felt tenderly about wicked people, the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. Uh, somebody said recently, we, we're concerned about all suffering as Christians, especially eternal suffering. We aspire to love in the same practical, this worldly way as God has loved us, supremely through the incarnation, suffering, and death of Christ for us, his enemies, which involved sympathy, care, help, generosity, sacrifice for unworthy people. This is the Christian ambition. And although I am tempted to be practical, I'm going to have to say much more about the practice of this command tonight. Simply to lay out before you the, the teaching in summary, God could not have given us any greater commandment than this because there is nothing that is more right Nothing that is more joyful, more good, more satisfying to us than to love. Even in our fallen nature, it is a great fight for us. But what a great victory it is as well. It is not as natural to us as Christians as it should be, as it will be. 
But in Christ, we nevertheless find that every bit is delightful and wonderful and enjoyable and right as God intended. And one of the very interesting things about love is that we can't seem to have too much of it. We are sated with too much of other good things, but not love. No one who really loves doesn't realize it would be better still to love much more. And there's so much more I could say, but I think that I've covered the basics of the command. It's deep and searching and goes to every part of us, mind, will, affections, and actions. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. More briefly, I consider the question with you, why is this second commandment like the first? Why is the second commandment like the first? Jesus was asked for one commandment, and and Jesus responded with two, saying the second was like the first. What's the reason? The Bible makes the connection in many ways. It says, for instance, Beloved, let us love one another for... Love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There is this intimate connection, which means that we can't leave it at just loving God. (coughs) And God has made us in his own image. So it says negatively, if somebody says, I love God, and then hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen... How can he love God whom he has not seen? Man is the image of God. Well, to say it positively, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Uh, I didn't put it in my notes here, but there's a famous quote by Augustine that's been very helpful to me, that we are to hate a wicked man insofar as he is wicked and to love him insofar as he is a man. It's not quite the hate the sin, love the sinner, but it, it is a, uh, a more nuanced and a, a, a right approach. Insofar as a man is wicked and doing wicked things, he is to be hated. Insofar as he is a man, and uh, especially a man in God's image, he is to be loved. And Uh, This is also the connection. Christ has come into the world as a man on a mission of love, of love to men. And we are now called to live and to give out of the abundance of what we have received. For those who have known God's love are transformed and changed by degrees from being self-centered creatures into those whose primary ambition in life is to love God and to love others in his name. And this may change others. It it may not change others or make them easier to love, let's be honest. But it will change you. That's the point. It will make you like God, who is kind to the evil and unthankful, it says. You will be sons of your Father in heaven, For he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. It may change others, it may not, but it will change you. And when you come to him in need of help, there is nothing like the power of his spirit to bear this supernatural fruit of love. There is nothing when you are being provoked 
that will help you more than remembering that God has responded to your provocations, not in anger, but in sacrificial love. While you were yet an enemy, Christ died for you. God has responded to you in grace far greater than all of your sins. There is power in that. Can you see? This is not the world's love. This is above it and beyond it. It has power. It has power to change the world, as I'll say, but it has great power to change you. And you need to receive so that you can give. Maybe one of you in particular needs to receive the love of God today. And you're fighting against it. And you need to understand you can't give what you don't have. God's love and grace that is greater than all of our sins is alone what is able to uplift, to ennoble, to bring you to something that is truly called life. You need to receive so that you can give. Well, John Lennon said that all we need is love. And now at the Olympics, I was sad to hear, and also every year at New Year's Eve on Times Square, John's song asks us to imagine a world filled with such love and the brotherhood of man, though no God, no heaven, no religion too. I think it's patently foolish to try to divide true love from its only true source. For there's another John, the Apostle John, that reminds us that love is of God, for God is love. And it's his love that is the source from which we must draw if we are to have a supernatural, world-transforming love. To love people in hard places, hard people in hard places. Well, I'd like us to consider now what the world needs now. I'm not just preaching these commandments in order to instruct us in the law or to convict us for the many ways in which we are breaking it. I'm especially interested in this series to be able to address the common lies of our culture, the common need of the world, and for Christians in it to be able to understand their role and their place if this love is the greatest duty of man, its neglect is the greatest sin of man. So again, there's too much that I could say. Nothing will go properly in the world when God's law is being so flagrantly violated. This lovelessness will ruin everything and everyone. Fulfilling this commandment will have a tremendous redemptive power that no amount of civil policy or money could possibly match. We are trying to solve by technical means what is, in so many ways, a heart problem. And when families, when churches, when communities approach those problems with hearts of love and compassion, things went better. Not perfectly, certainly. 
but fulfilling this commandment has redemptive power that no technical solution or civil policy or financial incentive can possibly do. I was struck reading recently a, a report of a conference on Christianity and culture where there was one segment where the speaker talked about his joy in being rescued from his LGBT identity. The next shared her story of her pro-abortion past and the, the lives of her two children that had been lost and how she's now found life and freedom and forgiveness and family in Jesus. The next segment on the, the power of the gospel for racial reconciliation and then just segment after segment. I'm like, all these are, these are, these are the things that are on the front page of the paper that people have less and less patience even for much less answers. All these hot topics covered in real lives of flesh and blood people who have been restored and healed and renewed and who are in the process of walking new lives by the love of God. I say nothing goes well without this. Everything can be be redeemed with this. We think about countless ways in which this has been true in the history of the world. We think about the brutality in the ancient world in so many ways. And then we read the testimony of a pagan man named Lucian who says with astonishment, it is incredible to see the ardor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator has put it into their heads that they are all brethren. I've told you before the story of Pitron Steel, how Wayne Alderson turned around a whole steel plant that was losing millions with bitter division between labor and management, interracial clashes among the workers. Wayne was promoted to plant manager during a strike, but they thought they would probably have to close down the plant because things had gotten so bad for the last several years. And by the power of love, he won their hearts. There's nothing else to be said. He was out in front twice a day at shift change at the gates, meeting every one of his workers, getting to know them, getting to know their families, thanking them for their service. He started wearing the black, the black hat, uh, hard hat of the laborers, not the white hat of management as was their practice previously. He began walking with the men, walking home with the men, visiting them in their homes. He asked the chipper to lend him the jackhammer for a few minutes to know what it was like to do the hardest job in the plant. He was completely exhausted after two minutes. He handed it back and said, whatever they're paying you, you're earning every last penny. He said, well, the people said, look, here is somebody who is not above us, who understands us, who sympathizes and cares. And no turnaround in the history of business was ever as dramatic or as even as short as that steel mill. The union boss who knew he was a Christian, said, yeah, you got to start telling me some of that Bible. He asked him about that twice. Then Wayne put the third, the, for the third time, he said he was ready. He put a New Testament in his pocket. So when the union boss commented on the, the astonishing difference that had happened in the plant, that he would be ready to be able to turn him to Romans 12 and explain what it means to love. Hundreds of men ended up being converted, their families blessed, And I thought, who is this guy? He must have this enormous personality. You can look up on YouTube the uh, miracle of Pitron Steel. He doesn't speak as well as most of you. He's the most average guy. He had a heart of love. And in a matter of of months, just really, I guess all told, less than two years, 
he turned around one of the worst situations. Not only did he make it a profitable plant, he changed their lives through love. But let me tell you what's going on right now in the Middle East. About a man named Elias Sharkur. He was just a boy when the Jewish soldiers from the new state of Israel came to his poor village in Galilee where his family had lived for generations and they cared for a small orchard of fig trees. The Sharkurs were and are deeply devout Christians. And the soldiers came, ostensibly for a few days, and the Palestinian people of his village of Biram extended warm hospitality to them, fed them, put them up in their simple dwellings. But the Israeli soldiers did not leave as they promised. Rather, the people were driven from their homes by armed men, and they were neither told why nor what they were supposed to do to survive. For weeks they lived outside until they found a place in another village nearby for shelter. The soldiers confiscated their land, including Mr. Sharkur's fig orchard. And it so happened that in order to provide for his family, Elias's father eventually went to, back to work in his old fig orchard that he had once owned for the Jewish man to whom it had been given without compensation. He worked the land that had been stolen from him, and he had to get a work permit to be allowed on his own property. The people were treated with contempt by the new settlers, slandered as criminals and terrorists, although the simple people had never wanted to do anything but to live on their land as they had always done. But they were no longer Galileans. They were now Palestinians. They were people without a home or a country. Theirs was a fate, I must say, uncannily similar to that of the Jews in 1930s Germany, ironically. Eventually, Elias' father appealed for redress and the return of his property to the Israeli Supreme Court, which ruled in his favor. But the military then ignored the ruling. Later, he appealed again, and he won again, and this time the soldiers left, and as they left, in an act of pure spite, they first destroyed the whole village, homes, church, and all, so that the Sharkors returned to their simple house to find it in utter utter ruins, senselessly destroyed by the people who had no use for it themselves. Elias' father said to his children, Children, if someone hurts you, you can curse him but this would be useless. Instead, you have to ask the Lord to bless the man who makes himself your enemy. And do you know what will happen? The Lord will bless you with inner peace. And perhaps your enemy will turn from his wickedness. If not, the Lord will deal with him. This is how Elias grew up the man whose name you might know, who's done more for the practical advance of peace in this difficult situation than all the politicians have been able to accomplish. Elias grew up and became a Christian minister. He gave himself to the ministry of reconciliation between people who were always finding it easier and easier as the years passed to hate one another. Things were hard in his village. He began with his own congregation in a Galilean village, a congregation that had itself been embittered by all manner of petty hatreds, and they were living in declining circumstances. The town policeman was bitterly alienated from his own brothers. He did not even allow his brothers into his home when their mother died. 
in his house, and the rest of the family wanted to see the body before he was buried. The village had become a community of enemies, people who hated one another. In some cases, they could not even remember why he became a minister in this Galilean village. Charcour, through the first months of his ministry, this is in the late 60s, preached to little effect. Few people came to hear him. The man in the village who was in charge of the church building, the man who took care of the building, hated him. On one Palm Sunday, the one Sunday of the year when he could count on a full church, he led the congregation through the service to the end. No one was paying much attention. But as everyone rose for the benediction, Elias walked to the back of the church, shut the open doors, and pulled the chain from his pocket, ran the chain through the door handles, and fastened it with a padlock. And he walked back to the front of the church and began to speak. Sitting in this building does not make you a Christian. You are a people divided. You argue and hate one another, gossip, and spread malicious lies. What do the Muslims and the unbelievers think when they see you? Surely that your religion is false. If you can't love your brother that you see, how can you say you love God who is invisible? You have allowed the body of Christ to be disgraced. He writes, the congregation's shock turned to anger. The man who was in charge of the church building trembled as though he was about to choke. The policeman tapped his foot angrily and turned red around the collar. In his eyes, though, I detected something besides anger. Plunging ahead, he said, my voice rose. For many months, I have tried to unite you. I have failed because I am only a man. But there is someone else who can bring you together in unity. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives you power to forgive. So now I will be quiet and allow him to give you that power. And if you will not forgive, we will stay locked in here. You can kill each other. And I'll provide your funerals gratis. He said, silence hung. Tight-lipped. Fists clenched. Everyone glared at me as if carved from stone. I waited. With agonizing slowness, the minutes passed. Three minutes. Five. Ten. I could hear outside a boy coaxing his donkey up the street in the slow clop, clop of his hooves. Still no one flinched. My breathing had become shallow, and I swallowed hard. Surely I've finished everything. I've chastened myself, undone all these months of hard work with my... And then a sudden movement caught my eye. Someone was standing. Abu Mohib, the policeman, rose and faced the congregation, his head bowed, remorse shining in his eyes. With his first words, I could scarcely believe that this was the same hard-bitten policeman who had treated me so brusquely. I am sorry, he faltered. All eyes were on him. I am the worst one of all. 
I've hated my own brothers. Hated them so much I wanted to kill them. More than any of you, I need forgiveness. And then he turned to me. Can you forgive me too, Abuna? I was amazed. Abuna means our father, a term of affection and respect. I've been called other things since arriving in Ibelin, but nothing so warm. Come here, I mentioned. I motioned him to my side. He came and we greeted each other with a kiss of peace. Of course, I forgive you, I said. Now go and greet your brothers. And before he was halfway down the aisle, his three brothers had rushed to him. They held each other in a long embrace, each one asking forgiveness of the others. In an instant, the whole church was a chaos of embracing and repentance. Cousins who had not spoken to one another in years wept together openly. Women asked for forgiveness for malicious gossip. Men confessed to passing damaging lies about each other. The second church service of love and reconciliation went on for nearly a full hour. That village was then transformed. But such love for such a reason could not be kept just among friends alone because Christ's love had not been given to his friends alone. And so from that village, the love of enemies began to spread. And the necessity of Palestinian Christians loving Muslims and even more their Jewish persecutors became Elias's challenge. And that of his church and his people. And he began to work at a higher level. He, he worked to put the two peoples together as much as possible and, act, and organizing events to display the Christians' willingness to love and serve their Jewish neighbors, no matter their history. To love them even as enemies. And over the past generation, this Christian minister from a small Galilean village has been one of the most powerful forces working toward Palestinian Jewish reconciliation, and all in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of Love. He was named in Israel Man of the Year in 2001. I, I realize he gets so little attention because it seems that people are invested in keeping the conflagration going. He's won a large number of peace awards, three times nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, which seems to me is too political to award it to a Christian like him. He gave a speech a few years ago in the U.S. He said, you who live in the United States, if you are pro-Israel, on behalf of the Palestinian children, I call unto you, give further friendship to Israel. They need your friendship. But stop interpreting that friendship as an automatic antipathy against me, the Palestinian, who is paying the bill for what others have done against my beloved Jewish brothers and sisters in the Holocaust and Auschwitz and elsewhere? And if you have been enlightened enough to take the side of the Palestinians, oh, bless your hearts, take our sides, because for once you will be on the right side, right? But if taking our side would mean to become one-sided against my Jewish brothers and sisters, back up. We do not need such friendship. We need one more common friend. We do not need one more enemy, for God's sake. 
well, nothing will make this possible in the world. Nothing will even make this comprehensible except for the love of God in Jesus Christ for us who were his enemies. And an ardent desire to honor that love, to adorn that redeeming love that has changed us, to adorn it before others, to practice it in our own however small way in our gratitude for the Lord Jesus Christ and an imitation of our God and Father and in bearing the fruit of His Spirit. That is the love that the world needs now. The love that ought to mark every Christian life in discernible ways. This is the love alone that can change the course of this world. A famous Scottish writer put it more than a century ago that love is the greatest thing in the world and the Lord therefore commands you, commands you to make the greatest thing in the world part and parcel of your life in its great redemption. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come to a subject as grand as love, we know that we have not begun to speak adequately of it. We need it much more ourselves. We, we desire to bask in it, to receive it anew, to possess our possessions. We pray that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge in order that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. O Lord, take away our miserable folly. Give us a new power, a supernatural power for supernatural reasons to rise above to overcome evil with good, to love even the unlovable for your sake, to begin to begin to make some redemption of this world so sunk in hatred. We pray, we often pray and rightly pray for those who are leading our country, making laws, making treaties, the nations of the earth. We pray for your people in those difficult places to win the true victory as it is in Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen.